Okay, last time we got farther ahead than I had thought, and we got into John chapter 10 a little bit, uh, and tonight we're going to back up and talk about uh, figures of speech, because there are many in the Bible. Uh, we do take the Bible literal. We do take the Bible at face value. What the Bible means is what the Bible says, and what the Bible says is what the Bible means. At the same time, we understand, just as we have different ways of speaking in everyday life, so does the Bible. Just as we have different kinds of word pictures, so does the Bible. And so we're going to talk about some of these, uh, and that uh, the types and styles of writing, the type of language. Remember, we always talk about context. <clears throat> Do not take scripture out of context. Well, the type of language, or even the type of writing that a part of scripture is, that's part of the context, too. So... Uh, first talking about figures of speech, the first one I've got on the first page there is metaphor. Uh, and I think if you break down the word into its roots, meta can mean alongside of, and for is uh, a Greek word that means to carry, so it carries something alongside is what metaphor is. A metaphor is a comparison that does not use words like or as. Uh, not using those comparative words strengthens the comparison. Uh, perhaps the most famous metaphor of all is the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, when I was a vicar 30 years ago, Oh my. Uh, I was a vicar in Partyville at St. John's. And I taught a Bible class, and I don't even remember what it was, but we got into figures of speech a little bit. And I talked about uh, well, how the Bible uses words in a somewhat artistic way. And I said, uh, the 23rd Psalm uh, is a word picture, and, and there was this dear, uh, there was this dear lady in the class, she said, what do you mean the 23rd Psalm is a word picture? I said, well, the Lord is my shepherd. Yeah, the Lord is my shepherd. I said, there's a word picture in there. What do you mean a word picture? Well, I said, the Lord really isn't my shepherd, and she was offended. Say such a thing. And I said, Well, the Lord doesn't really stand out in a field with a staff, and I'm not really a sheep. I don't have a, a woolly coat, and most days I don't say bah. And I think I really, really confused her and disturbed her, uh, saying, The Lord really isn't a shepherd. He's not really outstanding in a field. 
watching over a flock of woolly sheep. Uh, but when King David says, the Lord is my shepherd, by that he means the Lord is a lot like a shepherd. The Lord does things that a shepherd does. And by dropping words like, like, what that means is the Lord is exactly like a shepherd. Uh, and so uh, it is a figure of speech. Uh, we understand it as poetry. Uh, if you've ever heard the term genre for a type of literature, uh, psalms are poetry. You should expect to see figures of speech, picturesque speech there. So is God really a shepherd? Does he stand in a field looking over a flock? No. Uh, why does David say the Lord is my shepherd? Because he's drawing on his own experiences, think, remembering his teenage job as a shepherd, watching over sheep, and saying, this is the same thing that God does for me. Uh, so that's a, a metaphor. Uh, calling God something he is not, but calling him that to make a connection, to illustrate. Uh, metaphors can be a single word, like the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my light, uh, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. Uh, and really, God is none of those things, but he's a lot like those things. Okay? That's what's meant by metaphor. Uh, a metaphor can be a single word. It can also be more than a single word. And in Psalm 23, David carries that through the first half of the psalm. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He nourishes me uh, in body and soul. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes me physically and spiritually. Uh, uh, so that's what a metaphor is. Metaphors are used to, to stimulate thought, to get you thinking. Uh, it's used for the sake of beauty. King David could have said, God takes care of me. That's it. And if he did, that wouldn't be everyone's favorite. Instead, he pictures it, and that draws us in. Uh, in some ways, metaphor is also compressed language. Because with one word, shepherd, he brings to mind all kinds of things that a shepherd does. Pictures you've seen of shepherds. A shepherd going after a wounded lamb. All of those things. Uh, that's all compressed into the word shepherd. Uh, simile is the second one. And we're going to see metaphor in John chapter 10. We're not going to see simile. Uh, but... Uh, just to show there are different things like this in the Bible. 
simile is a comparison that does use words like like or as. Uh, and we find similes in many of Jesus' parables when he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went to hire people for his vineyard. He makes the comparison and he tells us it's a comparison. Uh, Psalm 1 has metaphors of uh, walking, standing, and sitting as picture words about going along with the wicked and getting more comfortable with it. You walk with them, you, st you stand with them, and then you sit with them. Uh, and, uh, but later in the psalm, uh, there is a simile. It talks about the, the blessed man who doesn't go in the way of the wicked. Uh, verse 3 says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water, uh, which yields its fruit in season and its leaves do not wither. Everything he does prospers. That's the simile. Uh, the righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water. Uh, this next part, I put that in because sometimes you get a catechism kid who says, ah, ah, ah. Uh, you know, the Lord is my rock. And that, that means that God is, is solid and unmovable and unchangeable. And then somebody says, ah, ah, ah. You can take a jackhammer to a rock, and it's like you're taking the metaphor beyond uh, what the writer had in mind. When, when anybody comes up with a metaphor or a simile, uh, there's usually something they have in mind for that. And if you take it beyond what the writer wrote, uh, you're really doing violence to the language. So the kid who says you can take a jackhammer to a rock, that's uh, going beyond that point of comparison. Uh, in parable, we all learn the, the definition of a parable as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And it is that but I would rather, I think I, it's better to call it a story that's told to illustrate a spiritual truth. And usually there's just one. Uh, in a, a few of Jesus' parables, there's two. Uh, but most of the time there's one spiritual truth that's being illustrated. So Jesus says, uh, you know, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And somebody in the back says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, a man was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho and was attacked by thieves. And a priest and a Levite walked by. The Samaritans stopped and helped. Uh, and which of the three was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by thieves? The one who had mercy on him. That's the point of the parable. 
And it's pretty much stated right up front, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the parable and says, which one was a neighbor? Uh, and the other things in the parable, uh, they're just there to move the story along. They don't really have a whole lot to do with the point, who is my neighbor? Uh, like, what, what does the Samaritan's donkey represent? It doesn't really represent anything. It's how the Samaritan got around. Uh, what are the two coins that the Samaritan gives the, the innkeeper? What do those represent? He was just taking care of him. That's, and, and looking out for him when he wasn't going to be there. He's paying somebody else to watch him. Uh, they don't really represent anything. They're just part of the story. Uh, I think I may have heard a sermon or two where meanings were attached to what we have, the oil and the vinegar, that, or the oil, I'm thinking salad dressing. <laughs> the oil and the wine that the, uh, yeah, the Samaritan got out a bottle of Newman's Own and just uh, <laughs> poured that on. The, the oil and the, the wine, what do those represent? They just show the guy's care. That was the medicine they had at the time. Uh, they don't necessarily represent anything. Uh, so, uh, parable. Remember, remember, if you're going to remember anything from this, parable is a story meant to illustrate a spiritual truth. Uh, usually one. Uh, this coming Sunday, we have a double parable or a parable that has two things that it's illustrating. Uh, it's the parable of the wedding banquet. The king throws the wedding banquet for his son and goes and invites different people and some people make excuses and some people strangely resent getting invited and they beat up the messengers and kill them. And then the king sends his servants out, go to the highways and byways and bring the people in so that my house can be full. Uh, and that's a parable illustrating oh, what we've been seeing in the Gospel of John. Jesus is giving the invitation and people harden their hearts against it. And then at the end of that parable, there's a mini parable about something else. The king goes into the banquet hall and he sees a guy not wearing a wedding garment. And the king says, why aren't you wearing a wedding garment? We were handing them out at the door. And the guy says, uh, I'm, my, my clothes are good enough. Maybe he was changing the oil in his chariot or something, and he just comes with his grubbies on, and, and the king says, throw him out. He refused to wear a wedding garment. And that, uh, that also relates to the invitation. God invites us on his own gracious terms. Uh, the previous people 
who made excuses or who reacted violently, they rejected the king's invitation in one way. The guy who comes in without a wedding garment, he's rejecting the king's invitation in another way. He's coming on his own terms, not on the king's terms. And so that's really a second spiritual truth. But it, most of Jesus' parables, there's just one. But that's parable. Allegory is a lot like a parable. Uh, it has a storyline, several elements that correspond with reality. If you remember King David and Nathan, uh, that's really an allegory. It's kind of like a parable. It's a story, but there are things many different things that correspond with reality. King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and uh, got away with it for almost a, a year. And then Nathan comes and tells the parable or the, the allegory of uh, a man had a pet lamb and he raised it like one of his children. It ate at his table and the wealthy neighbor stole the lamb and killed it and served it up for a guest. Uh, and uh, he brings it to David like it's a civil case and asks, what should be done with a person like this? Oh, that person deserves to die. And Nathan says, you are that man. Uh, David is the wealthy person in the, the allegory is a lot like King David. He had many wives, many women in his kingdom to choose from, but he took that one. Uh, poor Uriah is like the man with the pet. This is all he has. It's his joy. And David takes his wife. Uh, and instead of killing Bathsheba, he kills her husband. So that there's something not quite analogous there. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, allegory has a kind of a weird and kind of a bad history because allegories were made of things that are not allegories. Uh, in preaching and in biblical interpretation uh, from the time of Augustine, 400, to the time of Luther, about 1500. So this is going around on for about 1100 years. Uh, the allegory was the way the Bible was interpreted and the Bible was preached. And I heard, I went to a different church and I heard an allegory sermon. You will know what kind of church this was when I tell you what the allegory was. The, the gospel for the day was Jesus raises the young man of Nain. Uh, Jesus walks up to the village of Nain uh, and people are carrying out a stretcher or a coffin with a young man lying in the coffin. 
and his mother is there. She was a widow. This is her only son. And Jesus stops the funeral procession, goes up, tells the man to get up, and gives him to his mother. And then the allegory sermon I heard about it was that the, the dead man being carried out of the city uh, represents uh, the poor sinner who's dead in his transgressions and sins. And so Jesus comes and gives the person faith and, and, and gives him a life of faith. And then he presents him to his holy mother, the church, uh, and puts her in his, him in her care. And really, it isn't so much false doctrine, is it? We're dead in sin. Jesus raises us up. He connects us to the church for, for our spiritual care. That's not false doctrine, but it's not really what the lesson is about, is it? And, it? and if you say this is the meaning of the text, you're obscuring the meaning of the text. Jesus shows himself as the powerful son of God by raising the dead. But, uh, yeah, up until the time of Luther, that's what a lot of preaching was. Uh, and so the, what the problem was is making an allegory of historic texts, making, a, making parables out of things that aren't parables. Uh, and... Uh, There are some people who take some parts of Scripture, especially the miracle texts, and that practice from Augustine to Luther of allegorizing that is the way some people treat miracle texts today. Looking at Genesis 1 as an allegory. And as a matter of sound biblical interpretation, you can't take something as an allegory if it's presented as history, and if other parts of scripture refer back to it as history. Uh, so in <clears throat> Exodus 20, when God gives the commandment, remember the Sabbath day, it says, in six days, God made the heavens and the earth, and he rested on the Sabbath. So you keep a day of rest on the Sabbath, too. Exodus talks about Genesis as history. Or Jesus talking with the Pharisees about a question on marriage. Don't you know in the beginning God made them male and female and said the two shall become one flesh? Jesus speaks about Genesis as history. So uh, we treat historic texts as history. Um, so now you know the figures of speech. Uh, and this is not just in biblical literature. There are allegories and metaphors and 
similes in all kinds of literature, all kinds of writing. Uh, oh, anybody familiar with C.S. Lewis? Yeah, and uh, yeah, the Chronicles of Narnia. Those are allegories, and that um, it, a lot of the things in the stories are referring to uh, the Christian faith. Aslan was Jesus, uh, the rich who entices people with Turkish delight, is the devil who tempts us with the things that we think are alluring, and all and so on. Uh, and uh, that is a, a, an allegory. Or, um, well, any Trekkies here? Star Trek VI is an allegory uh, for the end of the Cold War. And that what happens in Star Trek VI is uh, the Klingons have a moon that has their nuclear reactor plant on it, and the moon blows up. It's Chernobyl. Okay? And then there's this ambassador, Gorkhan, it's Gorbachev, who comes and Captain Kirk and his crew have to escort them, and, and they work for peace and all of that. And that that's really an allegory for end of the Cold War. Or Matt, something MASH did a lot is that they were portraying the Korean War, but they were really saying a lot of things about the Vietnam War. That was kind of an allegory. Uh, so, anyway. Uh, on to John chapter 10. We talked about some of this last time, uh, but remember Metaphor as, you know, there's, there's a, a point of comparison. There's something that Jesus is stimulating our thought, getting us to think of uh, all aspects of a shepherd and a shepherd's care just by saying the word shepherd. He's compressing all kinds of thoughts down into just a few words. Uh, and yeah, to confuse you even more, all of this is more allegory than parable, and there are all kinds of metaphors. Not really a parable because there's not really a, uh, a storyline that really flows. It's just a few instances. The, the, the thief climbs over the fence. Uh, uh, he comes to, to steal and kill. Not really a story, uh, so it's a metaphors that stand by themselves. A lot of things that correspond, a lot of things in the shepherd language that correspond to uh, things in reality. So we look at this again. Uh, amen, amen, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the door but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens the door for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he is brought out, 
all his sheep, he walks ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger, but will run away from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration in speaking to the people, but they did not understand what he was telling them. That was another reason why Jesus used parables and metaphors is so that the people who wanted to get it would get it. And the people who didn't want to get it would think he's just telling silly stories about shepherds and uh, farmers gathering workers for their field and uh, we don't get it. And for Jesus sometimes that was intentional so that his own people would listen and understand, and his enemies would not. Uh, first, uh, I'll talk about, uh, well, uh, chapter 10, verse 22, uh, tells us that this was right around the time of the Feast of Dedication which is the same thing as Hanukkah. When we get to verse 22, I'll talk a little more about Hanukkah. But just for our time frame, this is probably December of 29. Uh, and all of this is building up to Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. Uh, uh, so, Jesus starts out by saying, uh, the thief climbs in some other way, the shepherd comes in the door. What does that mean? Or what does that bring to mind? Is a deceiver ever going to come up and say, okay, folks, I'm going to lie to you now? Never. Or my, one of my favorite things is, is to say is the devil will never come in a red suit with a pitchfork and horns and say, hi, I'm Satan and I'm here to ruin your life. These days, I'm afraid that the devil could show up with his horns and pitchfork and red suit, and people would say, oh, we've been waiting for you. Uh, we live in really strange times, don't we? Uh, where uh, the Satanists put up statues in the public places. Uh, good is shown as evil, and evil is shown as good. Uh, but... Uh, <clears throat> Now the, the, somebody who comes in by some other way is a thief and a robber. Here's where I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit. I didn't talk about this last time, but uh, I think of gimmick ministries, uh, a faith healer gets an auditorium of thousands because the people want to see something spectacular. 
are they getting the gospel? Or are they watching the gimmick? Or a preacher talks about success, uh, talks about self-esteem, uh, gets his auditorium that used to be a stadium full, uh, writes many books, and is he proclaiming the gospel? Uh, or uh, a preacher claims to have a different way of doing church and people come to see him entertain them and that's the gimmick and are they being given something to build their faith? Uh, what's the message? And is there a message? Uh, or is there a gimmick? And to be fair, we're an old-time church with an old-time gospel can be a gimmick too. If you're selling nostalgia, uh, the gospel has to be there. Uh, the gimmick the thing that gets people's attention, uh, that's like the thief climbing over the fence. Jesus says, I come in the door. Uh, no deception. Uh, um, several times Jesus says, the sheep listen to his voice. Uh, they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Uh, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Uh, this has to do with how important it is for God's people to know God's word. I think I did talk about this last time. Uh, bankers and people from the Secret Service never study counterfeit money. They always study the real thing. And when they see the counterfeit, they know it right away. Because they know every line, every swirl, every imprint on the real thing. They can spot it if it's not in the right place. They can spot it if it's a bad print job. Uh, they can, and in the same way, when God's people know God's word, they can, fight, they can find the fakes. Uh, they can spot the counterfeits. Uh, how important it is, is it for people to be well-trained in doctrine? This is the reason why I found myself becoming a catechism preacher. Whenever I come to a text, I will say, what commandment does this go with? What part of the creed does this go with? Uh, what line of the Lord's Prayer does this go with? And then you bring your doctrine in from that. Uh, and if people don't know doctrine, uh, they'll be open to the gimmicks. 
So the sheep listen to his voice. Uh, they do not know the voice of strangers. Uh, now, before, you ever hear the term mixed metaphor? And, and usually it's not, a, it's not meant to be a good thing because you're, you're using one word picture and then you're, you're twist throwing it, something else in. Mixed metaphor. Well, Jesus does that. So first he says, I am the good I am the shepherd. Uh, now he says, I am the door for the sheep. Uh, what does door mean? Entry? Yeah. Entry. in. But the answer is entry. Yeah. And then we have to ask the question, is Jesus really a door? Does he have hinges and a doorknob? No, he doesn't. Does he do a lot of things that a door does? Yes. He's the way in. Uh, so, uh, Jesus said again, Amen, amen, I tell you, I am the door for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Uh, uh, that part, all who were before me were thieves and robbers. Uh, do you remember the, the state of things, the religious state of things before John the Baptist? Who was running the religious life of Israel? Herod was Herod and in the temple. Would have been the Pharisees and the family of Caiaphas. And what, remember what? Remember John chapter two. What does Jesus do when he walks in the temple? Yeah, he overturns the the tables of the money changers. Uh, that's how they were leading the, the people of Israel spiritually. Is they were overcharging them for buying animals and exchanging money. Uh, so all who came before me were thieves and robbers. Uh, the individual Israelite pay their taxes to the temple there or where? Well, there was a temple tax, uh, but then the Romans had their own taxes and their own tax collectors, and that's what Matthew and Zacchaeus were doing. But the temple tax was paid at the temple? The temple tax would have been a separate thing. It might have been collected at the temple. It might have been collected at the synagogue. Uh, but the, the, the money changing in the temple, that was a separate thing. That was a different thing than the temple tax. Uh, so Caiaphas and his crew, they were interested in profit. Not prophets, but profit. Uh, and Jesus comes, 
John the Baptist comes as the first prophet anybody had seen in 400 years. And that's why he draws a crowd, because nobody had ever seen anybody like it. And Jesus goes and teaches the truth from Scripture. Uh, teaches the Father's will. Uh, and teaches clearly. And draws a crowd, because people hadn't heard anything like this before. Uh, so, uh, then everything that we had so far that is leading up to verse 11 uh, Jesus repeats this part a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly I come to you and now here's, this is the high point. This is what everything's been building up to. I am the good shepherd. Uh, Jesus reveals he is talking about himself. Uh, and he's the fulfillment of Psalm 23. And... He also shows us in December of 29 that he's thinking about April of 30. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired man who is not a shepherd does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the sheep and scatters them. Because he works for money, he does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Uh, let's just pause there. Uh, uh, Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. That's right in line with, I've come to give them life and give it to the full. Uh, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they were there only to take. Jesus comes to give and to give himself. Uh, and then he says, uh, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. What does the word know mean? Or what does that bring to mind? Trust. Okay. That we should trust him because he knows us. Yeah. And that... I know my sheep, my sheep know me. He's very familiar with Yes. He has knowledge. Yeah. And it, uh, something I was looking up, and then I thought, well, that does really help us. But I looked up in the original Greek, there are two different words for know. And the first one has to do with familiarity. You've heard of something. 
is the second word that has to do with knowledge by experience. Uh, when Jesus says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me, this is really the, the, the more common word for know that has to do with familiarity. Uh, but still, it's knowing. Um, I know my sheep and my sheep knows me, know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. We're getting some Trinitarian theology here, aren't we? How does Jesus know the Father, and how does the Father know him? They're one and the same. Okay, that's coming, <laughs> isn't it? That's coming later. I and the Father are one. So how well do they know each other? Yeah, if they're, if they're one, they know each other completely. So, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Uh, something this reminded me of was 1 Corinthians 13, which you know from all the weddings. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Love is patient, kind does not envy, does not boast, keeps no record of wrongs. And then at the end of all of that, St. Paul says, now we know in part, now we see but a, but a poor reflection like in a mirror. But then I will know fully as I am fully known. Um, so, um, I know my sheep and my sheep know me and I lay down my life for my sheep and that comes up uh, in the next verses too. I also have sh other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also and they will, all, they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. Uh, there are a couple passages in the Psalms that talk about God as the shepherd of Israel. Uh, he who watches over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps. Um, uh, that God is the shepherd of Israel. And then Jesus here says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Uh, I think I talked about this last time. Uh, God's Old Testament outreach program was stay and be my people. Stay at this crossroads and uh, be a light to the Gentiles as they pass through. Uh, if you wanted to go from Turkey to Egypt, you had to go to Israel. If you wanted to go from Egypt to Babylon, you had to go through Israel. Uh, it was a crossroads. And uh, stay and be my people. That was the Old Testament outreach plan. The New Testament outreach plan, go and make disciples. Go into all the world. Uh, and so uh, I have other sheep 
that are not of this sheep pen, I must bring them also. There Jesus is talking about going beyond Israel. Uh, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This is the commission I have received from my Father. So Jesus is thinking about April of 30. Not just a Friday, but also a Sunday. He's thinking about Easter. And do you remember I said this, one of these phrases that keeps re repeating is Jesus talks about, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. Uh, oh, we must have had a, about a half dozen times in a row. And here Jesus says, this is the commission, or this is the command I have received from my Father. Which is a roundabout way of saying, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. Uh, he's not here to do his own thing. The people who were there to do their own thing were doing a lot of damage. But he's the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. Uh, and then we see a repeat of something else that we've, we've seen before. Uh, and Jesus said, I am the bread of life. What did somebody, what did some of the people think? Free lunch? Yeah, some people thought free lunch. I am the bread of life. And then some people thought, this is nonsense. And we're getting no free lunch and we went away. Uh, and Jesus heals the blind man. And what were some of the reactions? Even on the Sabbath. Okay, you can't do that on the Sabbath. This guy's a lawbreaker. And then others said, how could somebody who is not from God do such things? So there was division, and he talked about being the bread of life. There was division when he heals the blind. And now Jesus talks about being the good shepherd, and there was a division among the Jews, again, because of these words. Many of them were saying he is a demon and is out of his mind. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the sayings of someone demon-possessed. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So you have some people who hate him and some people who love him. Uh, some people who are paying very little attention to what Jesus is doing and some who are getting it, who see the miracle and under the second purpose of the miracle. To show, reveal his glory, shows who he is. Okay. Now, we're at verse 22, so we can talk about how. Uh, Adam Sandler made a song. 
get out your yarmulke, it's time for Hanukkah. Uh, uh, the festival of dedication. Uh, it was, then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple area in Solomon's colonnade. Uh, Hanukkah is uh, remembering a historic event. Uh, in 175 BC. So, for Jesus' time, that was 205 years earlier. So for us, think of, well, even longer ago than George Washington. Uh, but, but think of that kind of a time frame. In 175 BC, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, invaded Judah and surrounded Jerusalem and put an altar to Zeus in the temple and sacrificed pigs on the altar. Mm. What's the problem with that? Pig can clean. Yeah, Zeus pig. hasn't done their job. Yeah, and uh, according to some sources, it was that Antiochus put a statue of himself in, in the temple courts. So you remember, remember how some people number the first two commandments differently than we do. We just have, you shall have no other gods, and then we go forward and say, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. But what's commandment number one and a half? Yeah, do not make a graven image. And so... Uh, we do cover that in our catechism instruction when we talk about the difference between secret idolatry and open idolatry. Worshipping an image is, is open idolatry. But Antiochus puts a statue of Zeus or a statue of himself as Zeus in the temple. Okay, he's openly breaking that commandment about graven images. And then he sacrifices a pig on the altar. That's not kosher. That's impure. That's about as unclean as you can get. Uh, and the purpose of it was, we're going to introduce Greek culture to these people, and we're going to make Greeks out of them. Uh, and when... Uh, Mattathias, who was a priest, and his sons rose up and, and led a resistance. Antiochus attacked Jerusalem, surrounded Jerusalem, and in the midst of the siege, Antiochus died. And the Jews said, it's a miracle, let's drive out the Greeks, let's rededicate the temple. And so that is Hanukkah. There's, one, there's a legend connected with Hanukkah about the oil lamps in the lampstand running out of olive oil and the priests fretting. How can the city surrounded? We can't get out to get olive oil. How are we going to keep the lamps burning? There is a legend 
that the lamps kept burning and didn't run out of oil. And so that's why the Jews on Hanukkah have this Hanukkah menorah that has nine branches instead of seven. And that they light one candle or one lamp for each day of Hanukkah. So that's the origin of Hanukkah, 175 BC, with the Maccabees and Mantiphias and driving out the Greeks. Um, and so because it had to do with driving out the Greeks and then the Maccabees establishing themselves as the rulers of Israel, remember how I said the Feast of Tabernacles had kind of a 4th of July flavor to it? Remembering how we, were, how we became a nation, how we lived in tents as we came up from Egypt. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the things the Feast of Tabernacles was about. Of course, the Passover had kind of a 4th of July flavor too. Our origin as a nation. This is how we came up out of Egypt. And so the Festival of Dedication, or Hanukkah, for the Jews that would have, at that time, that would have had kind of a 4th of July flavor too. We remember the Maccabees, how they drove out the Greeks. How do you think that memory went with the Romans? Or how do you think some of the Jews felt during that festival when they remembered we drove out the Greeks and now we're living under the Romans? Uh, so uh, that's what the festival of dedication is. Uh, and that's what Hanukkah is. Uh, on the worksheet, I do have a picture and this, there is a model of ancient Jerusalem in Jerusalem, so you can see what things looked like uh, as, as best as can be determined. And on the south end of the temple courtyard, if you look to the far left in that picture, you see these columns, and you see like several floors in that colonnade that porch. So when it talks about Jesus walking in the temple area in Solomon's colonnade, that would have been a shady place. Uh, a place to hide out in midday. A place where people might gather to pray. A place where people might uh, come to, to listen. A place where Jesus was teaching. We know uh, on Palm Sunday, well, maybe Monday of Holy Week, Monday and especially Tuesday of Holy Week, Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, possibly in this colonnade. Uh, so that's where Jesus is. And uh, the Jews gathered around Jesus asking, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. How many times had he been telling him? How many things had he been showing him? Uh, and Jesus says exactly that. He says, I did tell you, but you do not believe. Uh, and then what does he point to again? 
the miracles he had been doing. The works I am doing in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep as I said to you. Remember how I said last time, and maybe the time before, we're seeing hardness of heart as a recurring theme. And just like the king of Egypt sees ten plagues and refuses to let the people go, well, Jesus' enemies are seeing miracles and rejecting it, even with the truth right in front of them. Um, so, you do not believe because you are not my sheep, as I said to you. So he's going back to what he said earlier. Uh, and then verse 27 and 28. He, this is a gold, one of those golden passages. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. There was a sweet lady in one church that I served. She always liked pluck. No one can pluck them out of my hand. And uh, I told her, I think they chose snatch because that has more of a violent flavor to it. But I don't think you can pluck a sheep. You can pluck an eyebrow. Pluck a bird. Yeah. But no one can snatch them out of my hand. What, what a wonderful comfort that is. Don't want to get, uh, yeah, we don't want to get cocky and don't want to have false security. But when Jesus talks about his care as a shepherd, he says, no one can pluck you out of my hand. Um, this is a favorite passage for me to read or to recite at somebody's deathbed. Remember I jokingly said once, I think I figured out, I haven't done this in a long time. I haven't done this this way, especially since March since COVID, but it, it seemed like I always, I happened to be at, uh, I happened to be the one who was there when a lot of people were about to pass away. And, uh, I jokingly said, I think my ministry special, specialty is doing the last rites, uh, because I've done it, I think I did it, you know, three or four times in a, the course of a week once. And, uh, but that's very special. This is one of the last things that this person hears on this side. And I'm preparing them for that side. That's cool. I can do that job. I can make that my ministry special. That's not a bad thing to do. Uh, so my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Uh, yeah, think of the dying person in a hospital bed or a nursing home bed and 
This is what they hear. No one can snatch you out of my hand. That's what they need to hear at that moment, isn't it? 